I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with Ray Cosbert, MD of Metropolis Music. Here's what Ray had to say why I asked him why he chose the music industry. Many African and Caribbean folk do. You grow up with a lot of music around you. It's part of your family thing and your social gatherings and things like that. But I played in school bands and things like that and uh, just always had music in my life. But I never thought I could make a career of it. And uh, as most, my, my family are Guyanese and my mother just couldn't understand why you would want a career in music because you should be a lawyer, you should be a doctor, you know, and... Uh, you go to work properly dressed, not in trainers and jeans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it was a calling. I think in many ways I just came into it and evolved. It evolved because I think like a lot of kids growing up as, as in that time in the late 70s, early 80s or whatever, it was hard to see how you could make a career in music, if you know what I mean, because uh, the music I liked really was was a lot of soul and a lot of reggae and stuff, and, and it, it was very much a fringe music it was a part of the mainstream as it, as it is now so the idea of making a career from something that you like was just, just the two things just didn't connect but the journey into it was just a very long and evolved one you know did you never think about from the school band being a professional musician was that not a calling for you i, I wasn't good enough <laughs> well that's that there's rank policy <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 was the whole problem. that was the whole problem with that. I wasn't good enough. Yeah. No, what, no, did you, no. what did you play? Uh, well, my dad bought me a drum kit when I was seven and uh, so I stopped punching holes in the sofa. And then I played percussion. I played a bit of guitar and all that sort of thing, you know, and I still strum every now and again now. But I'm, I, in no way would I say I'm competent to go out and, you know... You know your ceiling in certain things, shall we say. It's like, you know, you, you get to know, you know how far you're going to go up. And um, being a professional musician wasn't my path. Back in the day when you were listening to music, you talked about soul music. What were some of the, the bands and the artists that what piqued your interest? As a youngster, uh, listening, because I'm the, the youngest of my brothers and sisters, and it was all Motown when I was a kid, obviously. <laughs> From a Caribbean background, you had a lot of Nat King Cole and all that in the background as well, and jazz. But my father, my father uh, was very much into his jazz and stuff as well. But then growing up into my teens, I just got into a lot of reggae, a lot of sound systems and going to blues dances and things like that. But also, that was a Saturday night. The Friday night was going to like soul clubs and stuff and getting down with the whole boogie scene, as it were. That was kind of like my entry into the whole thing. And at what point did you go from going to clubs to starting promoting, which was your entry point? Well, it was it was a weird and convoluted journey, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was at college, I was on the student union. And like most promoters, I started as, a social, as an events organiser for the student union. So I would put on shows at uh, uh, college and uh, higher venues. Um, I remember doing a show at the Wag Club, for example, the old Wag Club on Wardour Street, which I'm sure you remember. Yeah, um, doing gigs there, Tommy gave me a night where I could put on shows and things like that and get students down. And that's kind of where my first uh, foray into promoting started and learning how hard a business it is, basically. 
And I just started doing events and then working with friends and helping friends' bands out, putting on the odd uh, thing, just do stuff at the King's Head in Crouch End and uh, um, the odd show at the Bedford in Ballam and things like that. But once again, at that point, I'd left college and I was also working for a fashion company where it was selling women's wear, strangely enough, but uh, but but still doing the odd, the odd gig promotion. Do you know what I mean? Because once again, I did... I did see the path into how I could make a living out of it. That wasn't clear to me at that point. So what was the point that you actually thought, I can make this my life and and it's real? It was one of those chance meetings, to be honest with you. I was doing a club at the Borderline called Backstage, which was a fortnightly jam session for musicians. And um, the owner of Metropolis, Bob Angus, came down there one night um, because we had... We always had bands playing. I was thinking that night, Seal was still in Push before he done Killer with Adamski. And Push were playing that night. And uh, I think it was one of the last gigs in London that Seal done when he was fronting Push. And um, Bob came down and we just got talking and he told me what he did and things like that. And he goes, have you ever thought about doing this, you know, professionally? Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like, you know, and I thought, well, you know, I've, Fashion thing's a bit of a laugh, but I think, you know, if I could get my foot in the door, this could be my way in. I said, yeah, let's give it a go, you know, and that's, that's kind of how my whole journey with Metropolis started, really. Um, what was the reaction to the Cosba elders when their son came and told them he was going to venture into the music business? My mum kissed her teeth <laughs> and walked Walk, walked off back in the kitchen and started carrying on cooking roti. Um, my, my, my brothers and sisters were all very supportive, you know, because I said it was literally Stein at the bottom and um, we, we had a basement in the Holloway Road. That was our office. There were three of us in the office and we'd done everything. So we'd done the, the booking, we'd done the ticketing, we'd done the production, so the booking of crew, the booking of PAs, blah, 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 blah. And driving around the country and repping the shows ourselves as well. It was a real DIY time, you know. You talk about Bob and someone who's been an, an early influencer in your career. Were there any other people that played a big part in kind of driving you forward in those early formative years of your career as a promoter? Now, I could see people like Lincoln on the inside, you know, who was working working his way up the ladder. Um, Darkus, obviously. Well, I can't think of anybody specifically that I could say that I was going, I want to be that guy. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because I've got to be honest with you, there were no real role models for, as a young black man coming into the, from, from that viewpoint. I just wanted to really just learn my profession and learn from Bob and learn as I went along and, you know, just develop as, as best I could, you know? Because once again, this is coming from a point of thinking how, there's no way I could do this for a living. And now I've got a chance to do it for a living. I've got to learn how to do it properly. You know, that's the kind of the, the ethos I went with on that. Did you get any kind of words of advice that you found useful as you started your career, walking into it? Yeah, it's funny. The, the, the one I always remember, very early in my career, I met a, a booking agent called John Giddings. And one of his, and I was, I don't know what I was complaining about, but his words summed up the promoting business for me. If you want loyalty, get a dog. <laughs> and ridiculous as that's <laughs> ridiculous as that sounds, it's it's very true. Because um it's one part of the music business where loyalty really doesn't um countenance for months at the end of the day. It's nineteen ninety, you started working for Metropolis. You've been a lone wolf, now you're working for 
a company, even though it's a small company. What were the differences you found from being the man running your own events to working with a team? Did it come as a shock? It did come as a shock. I just realised there were certain things that I wasn't doing. There was a lot that I wasn't doing that I needed to to, to learn very quickly. Um, learning the procedures. You know, there's a lot of people attaching glamour to the music business, but it's, it's worth remembering it's the music business, you know. And at the end of the day, our business can be like oil and water. I just learned I had to tighten up on the business side of it and understand what service, what service you're providing within the music uh, industry, you know. It's um, it's not all glam parties and all the sort of stuff you do. There's a lot of nitty gritty and the down homework that you need to do. And those are the basics you need to get right in order to aspire in, in the business. You know, that's, that's one thing I learned. And when you're looking at the live acts that you want to promote through Metropolis, what rules your head first, art or business? It's, it's a mixture of both. It's a mixture of both. A band, band, you, you've got to be a good band. You've got to have good songs. It's, 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 that's the standard building block of the whole thing. Then you think about how, you can, how can I add value to that amazing talent that I'm watching? You know, how can I make it grow? And, you know, like all these things, you, you see something and you'll just think, you know what? I kind of like that. I think I can get behind it and I've got a plan on how I can make the numbers go up, get them more fans. But obviously, you know, it starts to the point with the talent having, having a great show, being able to play and be able to do what they do on their side. The two things have to meld. If you know what I mean, you could, you could be a, a good band and have a bad promoter and you could be a, a, a bad band with a good promoter. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like you have to find a balance between the two. Has there ever been a point where the art and the love of music has overtaken the business sense, the sensibility about what you're doing? Sometimes, you know, you do get a passion with a band that you truly believe in and you really think that they should be successful. Um and sometimes it just doesn't happen, you know. But um, if you don't try, you don't know. If you know what I mean, there's no point in think going into thinking that it won't it won't work. You've got to go and believe that it will work. You know, that's 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 the thing. For any any time I'm booking a show, I am presuming it's always going to sell out. I don't think oh well, they're only going to do 70 percent business. That's that's no good for anybody. Do you know what I mean? You've got to go in with belief and, and understanding that you really want to make things happen. You know. You started out at the bottom, as we said. You're now MD. It was repping shows, booking shows. It'd be really nice for you to kind of chronicle your journey and the different roles that you've had to give our listener some idea of, of what it's like in the world of a promoter and, and what it entails, what those jobs entail. There's a number of different hats you have to wear within the, all of this. Primarily, you start, if you think about when you, do, you book a band from a, from a live agent, basically. And that requires your judgment in terms of what business you think a band is going to do, how many tickets they're going to sell, and you work out the numbers um, according to that, and then you make an offer for the band in terms of uh, what you think you can pay them, and um, you know, and how many tickets they're going to sell. Thereafter, then you have to get into how am I going to market this show? Now I've paid for it. Now I've booked this artist. How am I going to market the show? And that's where the, the, the skills of your sales and uh, promotion and, you know, how you link it with the record company and what the band are doing and what music is coming out and how you're going to link it to that and all the timings that go with it, basically. It's all about trying to operate at the top of the curve all the time, you know, to make sure that all the bits meld. And once you get past the part, I've now booked, I'm now marketing my shows on sale. 
I then have to work on the production of the show and how the show is going to look like. And that means working with the tour manager and the production manager and um, making sure that the costs of building the show fit within the costs you imagined you were going to spend on doing it, obviously, and try not to go over budget. And um, all things being well, you sell enough tickets and all the marketing works and all the production looks great. And then you open the doors and all the people coming in, you have a great show. Um, that's the easiest way of describing it without putting too much nuance on it. And what is the relationship between the promoter and the act? I mean, how integral and how much influence do you have on 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 a career as it develops? Because again, that's something that, that our listener may not may not know. Well, there's there's a key person in the middle here, and that's the band's booking agent as well. Once, as I said, art and business can be oil and water. So the agent very much acts as the osmosis between the, the promoter and the management stroke artist. Yes, you do have a close relationship because you are a stakeholder in all of this, but the planning and everything, because sometimes you don't, as a promoter in the UK, I won't probably know the whole picture of what's going on globally. And that's where the agent fits me into that picture, into the bigger picture of what's going on outside of my market, as it were. So they, they, that's the role of the agent within within all of that. But all along, I, I find that good managers and good artists always have a good working relationship with you because at the end of the day, as I hate to say it, we are paying for the services and we provide a, an income stream at the end of the day. So we do have to have a, a reasonably good working relationship. I've never worked with a band that would refuse to talk to their promoter. Let's put it that way. How do you see that relationship and your influence as having changed since you started in the business? Because the business has clearly, as all businesses do, moved on and there's been massive evolution about in terms of revenue streams, earning potentials, you know, you know, good and bad. But how important is the live promoter and agent in the current model of the artist? From when I started to now, things have flipped completely on their head. Live and I don't know if you remember this from back in the day, when you put in a record out, you'd have radio, you'd have TV, you'd have all the bits of go to it. Any other business, PS Live would be right at the bottom, okay? Because Live is, you know, as record sales declined and live ticket sales kept going, the Live, live kind of moved up the agenda. Nowadays, it's right at the top, basically, in terms of how we're going to fit the live program into the marketing of, of a record and the marketing of an artist. Whereby before, because the revenue wasn't tied into the, the marketing of a record or the selling of a record, we'll say we kind of were left to our own devices, as it were. Now it's, it's quite nice to be in, in the room, as it were, whereby, you know, we actually get invited to, to record company planning launches and things like that, which in the old days didn't really happen. I think it was the late 90s, the early noughties when I started to notice that change of um, record companies, et cetera, taking a bit more interest in live income and the revenue it could bring in. And and to be fair, to a degree, obviously the record companies have, have, have invested in that artist as well. It's another income stream which they thought, well, oh, we didn't really want a part of it, but now we do, you know. But if they've invested their money, it's a way of getting some of their investment back and it kind of encroached a bit on our area. But in some way, we're thankful for it because it means that everybody's working together for the same goal rather than sort of like dropping a ball halfway through. We all kind of see the journey right to the end now, as it were. Do you think that the advent of a more democratised way of people releasing music 
has led to a greater desire for income through live music because obviously back when you and I were first working with me in, in a record company, you as a booker, there was no Spotify. So the idea of being able to self-release and have a plethora of artists out there on a day-to-day where in a very crowded marketplace, it, it wasn't a possibility. The live income stream, I think, has become key for a majority of, of burgeoning artists. Does that put added pressure on you? I wouldn't say it's added pressure. I think it, it adds it adds value to the mix, the artists being able to self-release and control a lot of what they want to do. Um, it takes out a little bit of conflict in terms of where the, 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 the journey needs to go in terms of sort of like the artist is very much more in control of their timelines and how they want to put their music out because there's, you you know, you always had scenarios where a band would put out a record and it would take time to bed down. And by the time you get to doing the live shows, they're like, you know what, I'm kind of bored of playing those songs. I don't want to do them anymore. The fact we now have a bit more immediacy in terms of the link to their customers means that, our involvement as a promoter is, is a little bit more important in terms of how we can get them out working and doing shows at the right level in front of a decent audience, you know. I think in many ways it's increased the importance of what we do as promoters and uh, we can help a lot more, you know. We're not on the outside anymore. We should talk about your career and your, and your path to the big chair, Ray. I mean, it, so from 1990 as part of a small operation to being the man that runs this now behemoth of a company with some amazing acts. Tell us about your journey to getting there. It's really not that, it's not that difficult. The journey is, 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 has been a difficult one. It's just been a progression of things happening over the years. My seniority and experience, really, is about sticking in there and um, and and being, being part of the plan going forward. Um as the company expanded, obviously, because as I said, it started with three, with Bob, me, Bob and Paul and stuff. And um, I just kind of just stuck with it because I enjoyed what I was doing so much. There's so many ups and downs with it. But as I learned more and my experience got better and I learned more about the business and everything like that, your experience just makes you want to be a bit more entrepreneurial. It allows you to learn more about what you're doing and stuff. And um it came to a point a few years ago when um, the big boys came knocking on the door, that being Live Nation, and uh, saying that they wanted to uh, uh, purchase the company. And that's when it all kind of just went, right, okay, then now you're the boss. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that what you've achieved, Ray, which is incredible, it's been wonderful to view it from the outside for, for a lot of people, is you've managed to break a glass ceiling. Did you ever believe when you started that the top chair was going to be possible for for you was it something that you wanted yeah i wouldn't say something that i wanted was it achievable i think all things are achievable if you you know you you put your mind to it and stuff but i i never thought i'd be in a position i'd be in now there weren't many people of color in my position which kind of made me feel there's got to be there's got to be a point where I'm just going to fall off the radar, as it were. But I think my perseverance and keep working with bands and building bands and having successful acts, working with acts from the bottom, you know, like your massive attacks and and, and Eminem's and people like that, and watching their careers go, you kind of grow with it. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like it kind of rubs off on you. The lesson which comes from that is that if you if you truly believe in something, you do need to stick with it, even though you're going to be at the bottom of the trough sometimes. And believe me, 
I've been at the bottom of the trough after many a gig and have lost money and you've just thought, why, why am I getting, getting up in the morning to do this? The highs outweigh the lows, you know, and it's, and the journey is just about sticking with it, you know, it's sort of like, and you will work, find out if it was for you or not, you know, and I found a position within the company and grew with the company that worked for me. Starting out as a young black man in in this newly formed company, did you find that there were any challenges that you faced working in a world that was brand new to you? As a six foot four, rather large chap, <laughs> I was always mistaken for security, which always annoyed me a great deal. You find that people don't look at you, they don't look at you in a balanced way. A lot of people make judgments, and that's when the microaggressions come in. Oh, look at that big lad, blah, blah, blah. Oh, how long have you been doing security for the band? No, actually, I'm the promoter tonight, blah, 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 blah. You get through a lot of that. But after a little while, you just realise it's not going to stop you doing what you're doing, you know, And, and you can't let that get in the way. Many a times when I was touring around the country, you get a lot of microaggressions from people and stuff like that. But I never went in with the attitude, well, I'm the, I'm the Barry Big Potatoes here, as it were, and uh, you will do what I say. You don't, I never approached a situation like that. I was just like, well, if you've got issues with me on that level, then that's your problem, not mine. And I'm here to promote a show and do a job, and that's what I did. And earlier in the conversation, we talked about your first, well, your early forays into the business. Some, you're you, you meeting and talking about Lincoln and others. How important do you think it is for young, aspiring people of colour in the business to be able to see a reflection of themselves? Because that was something that clearly you didn't have to, to give you you that belief or the understanding that there was, it was possible as opposed to colour to make a, a long career in the business. When you see your people well, at that time, you know, there wasn't any, there definitely wasn't anybody in the life field that was doing what I was doing. Um, where, where in, in the role that I was doing, there were other black promoters, don't get me wrong, but they were very niche in terms of what I did. I worked in a very much a mainstream market. But um, with that connection in seeing people like Darkus and Lincoln, et cetera, just kind of just made me think, and also other people like Trenton and Aaron, you know, guys that you know that worked on the management side as well, was that, like, you know, you can do this. You know, there is a way through. And did I feel like a bit of a pioneer? Do I still feel like, yes, maybe, but having people around that you can think, right, they're, they're possibly having a very similar struggle to me kind of gives you a little bit of, gives you a little bit of hope and a bit of comfort to go out there and do your thing. You know, that's, that's kind of what it. And it's quite funny because people are saying, oh, you guys must have spoken all the time and all that sort of thing. We didn't really chat that much, but we all knew each other and we all knew what we were going through. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like the nod. You know, when you walk down the, down the road and you give a brother the nod. Yeah. That, that's kind of what the situation was, you know. And meeting up with the rest of the guys, were there ever those discussions where you sat and talked about those shared experiences? Yeah, we would do because it's the sort of thing, it's quite weird because it's a lot of things that our parents possibly went through as well. So we had a lot of comparable experiences, do you know what I mean, of like, Oh, I remember when I was in a meeting and so-and-so said this or so-and-so said that. How did you react to this? How did you react to that? And through those conversations, you you get to gather a picture about how you deal with the little things that pop up, you know, in unexpected situations. 
And it's not like, well, what would a so-and-so done? What so-and-so done? You've got to think about what you would do, you know? And through those experiences, yeah, you just gather all the mental notes together as you go along, you know? And it's all part of the learning journey of uh, being in this industry. In one of the early conversations we had with one of the guests, they said that as they took their journey through the business, they felt they lost part of themselves in trying to maintain a foothold in the business and be the person that people expected them to be. Do you think that right, the Ray Cosbert of 1990 still starts, it still has those same ethoses and values that he had back then and he's, and he's not changed in terms of what he stands for? Yeah, you definitely change. You age and you mature, you know, and um, you realise that, you know, you don't walk into the room with a hammer so much. You walk in with a rapier and you cut and thrust and you don't bludgeon your way through. You know, you you you, you learn subtleties about how to deal with your the, the, the things that are driving you and the things that make you want to do something. You learn how to use those tools better. And that's kind of what this journey has been like for me is just learning how to navigate things a lot better than what I would have. Ray of 1990, if I could go and speak to him now, I would be telling him off in some ways in terms of that's not how you would deal with this. You should deal with it in this way, you know? And what would you tell the young Ray? What would, what advice have you, if you could go back and talk to yourself in 1990 and say one life lesson to take as you started your journey, what would that be? Uh, try and go to bed the same day you wake up. That's yeah. As, as a promotion, that's, that's actually a pretty good life lesson. Um, I have to say, even not following that lesson, you still look very good, sir. <laughs> as an MD of Metropolis Music and someone who now has influence and access to people of equality and power in seats like yourself, what kind of changes are you hoping that you're going to see within the record industry for? people of colour as we as we go through the in, into the second decade or third decade of, of the 21st century? I have to say there's been a lot of change in recent years anyway. I mean, I see a lot more people of colour in the business in, in places that matter, you know, in terms of decision-making and stuff. And I think that's all down to, to, to education and knowing that there's a chance that you can do something in this in this industry. Within um, the Metropolis Live Nation sphere, we have a thing called Embrace Nation, which, which is about helping people of colour or, or of certain minority backgrounds to understand how their role fits within there and how you can educate people about where you've come from or where you want to go as well. You know, so we have a whole programme of mentoring um, people from minorities that, that you know, you, you, you can... What, what I, you can get ahead in this business, which what I didn't have 30 years ago, you know, it's, um, it's a nice point of reference. And there's lots of other agencies outside of that that are helping as well. So it's from, from where I stand right now, there's a lot of good positivity for people of color within this business. One of the things we've not touched on, which is fantastic and people may not know about you is your work with UNICEF. So it'd be really nice for you to kind of expand on that and, and let people know the kind of change you're making through that work. Well, it's all about the UNICEF is obviously all about campaigns for helping children and things like that. My first work with UNICEF was uh, there was a campaign. It's finally started by a now dead politician called Paddy Ashdown. And it was about getting, getting um, people in third world countries to encourage them to breastfeed 
I was taken on a trip to Liberia and um, because, dare I say, our pharmaceutical conglomerates pushed the power of powdered milk for these countries for many years. And a lot of these people forgot the power of breast milk, which really is a great disease preventative. And it's all about getting young bodies to grow. And um, it led from there, really. That was one of the first campaigns we've done. And we've been working in different areas and making sure that children don't go hungry. And um, we just have an ongoing campaign all the time where, where there are areas in the world where children are suffering. UNICEF is there to help. And we do campaigns of fundraising to aid all the work that they do. Um, and it's something I'm very proud of to sit on the UNICEF Music Committee and um, and helping help in this way, you know, it's give, and it's, and I said, it's not something, for me, it's not something that's giving something back. I see this as a duty, you know, to do what I, do what I can to help. No, it's an, it's an, it's an incredible thing and, and well done on that. If you were going to talk to uh, a young person thinking about what area of the business to go into, how would you persuade him to, to be a promoter like you? I would just explain to them that it's, it's one side of the business where you can see every facet of the business. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, it's, it's exciting. You know, you, you get to travel obviously within, within that as well. And if you have a passion for live music, this is the way you can get into it and make a living, you know, and be around bands and going to gigs and venues and things like that. It's exciting. It's a great life. And. You actually are helping somebody establish something in their career. You can be part of the story. Do you know what I mean? That's, that, that for me says a lot about things. You know, when I think of the first show, Eminem show I went to was at Subterranea. We've done a Subterranea. First time I saw Coldplay, they supported a band called Terrace at the Bar Flying Camden, now a multi, a global stadium act. Um, Massive attack. I mean, the first gig I've done with them was at the Baltimore Ballroom in Kilburn and now a multi-arena act. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's seeing all those things come to fruition through your work. It gives you great pleasure. And if you work with a band through the bottom like that, it's, there's just nothing like it. It's just a great feeling. We're getting to the, to the close of the interview, right? And we always like to do a few quick fire questions. So your biggest success? <laughs> biggest success is actually the Guinness Book of Records. Um, oh, okay. Uh, Robbie Williams, Three Nights at Nebworth House. No one's ever done that before. 130,000 people a day. Nobody's ever done Three Nights at Nebworth. Robbie's the only one. And people, if you want to know why Ray Cosbert is MD of Metropolis Music, that, that, that was the answer right there. <laughs> when you look back at where, where you're now, do you have any regrets? Yeah, there's certain bands of Probably over the years, it's always an act that you thought, nah, that's not going to work, is it? And before you know it, I just I just saw a bit of classic comment by Noel Gallagher. He, he heard the name Arctic Monkeys. He said they're going to get nowhere with a name like that. Do you know what I mean? But there's certain bands over the years you've come across that you think, you know, yeah, that's not, that's not going to work out. And the, no, I don't really have any regrets. I think sometimes I think some it wasn't meant to be. That's kind of what I think sometimes of things like that. Rather than think of it as a failure, I think maybe it just wasn't supposed to happen. And over the course of your life, who are the people who've provided you with inspiration, both personally and, prof- and, and professionally? My my mother, rest her soul, always provided me with a lot of inspiration. 
because of her antagonism to what I was doing. <laughs> what, just um, being, yeah, having to prove her that prove, prove yeah, her wrong. Yeah, to, having to prove her wrong all the time. That 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 for me was always very inspiring. But from an industry viewpoint, all my all my peers I've I've worked with over the years, I think of you know, and a lot of people, you guys probably on the podcast won't know these people, but people like Chris York at SJM, fantastic promoter who I've known for, for, for many years. The legend that is John Curd. Everybody in London will know John Curd. This is a promoter. I take inspiration from people, different things in different ways from people, just so I can add. Um, I think of people like Darkus and Lincoln. They've always, always inspired me with, with their work. Trenton, who's a very good friend of mine, is, is, work within hip hop and to this day I still find very inspiring his passion for the game and yourself obviously because you've been you've been around as long as I have and it's good to know that we're still here and still doing our thing you know because what my big fear was always just dropping off the radar and being a, a, a fade is not the wrong word but not achieving my goals you know and I think we've all done very well to get to where we are today and we should be proud of that and have you achieved your goals I think I've done most of the things I wanted to do in this business. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've gone from pubs to stadiums, you know, from the room above the pub to the stadium, which is the, the goal of a promoter one day to get, to get to the top of the pile. Is there more to do? I don't know what's around the corner. I'll keep going as long as I can, really, you know, but what I do want to do, which I, I'm trying to, that is that I have, um, you know, obviously associate promoters and junior bookers in the company. It's all about getting them up to speed now and, and building them up. Because obviously we have a mentoring thing within the company where, you know, we, we just want to get the young talented and get them involved in it, you know, because the, the world of promoters change obviously with social media and everything. And I'm, I'm a digital, digital immigrant. I'm not a digital native. And then now it's all about the digital natives, you know, and, and, and getting them, but they have to know the basics of the game as well. You know, it's, uh, you can't just walk into this and think, right, I'm going to, you know, reinvent the wheel. The wheel's round for a reason, you know? <laughs> and when you look at the business now and you look at the business when you started, what do you hope for in 10 years' time for people of colour in, in the UK music business? I think it's all about just understanding your worth within it. You bring value. You, bring value. you know, you have to understand that you are not just a... a you know, you're there because you're giving it. You're there on your merit. And I think a lot more of that is happening now with companies. A lot more companies are expanding their networks into areas to find, you know, more people of colour to get them more involved in this business going forward. Um, I know, obviously, from a lot of things that happened um, over George Floyd and things going forward, a lot of companies have had to have a look at themselves and have a look at their their diversity and where do they, why do we not have more women in these positions? Why don't we not have more people? Can, all these things are being looked at and they're being looked at in the right way. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we don't, I say we, I mean, people don't always need charity. They just need the opportunity, you know? And it's about giving people the opportunity first and foremost. If you can't give them, there's no way you can unearth that brilliant talent that we all know is out there. Give people opportunities, let them aspire. And the Ray Cosbert journey clearly has some way to go because you, you're not ready to breast the finishing line just yet. But when you sit down in that easy chair and, you know, you've celebrated your team winning the Champions League, like I will with you. <laughs> um, 
What will you look back on your career and want your legacy to be? I just want to know, I just want to be remembered as a promoter that helped talent develop, you know, the, the added value that um, I said, use that term very widely, that I added something to the party, you know, that I brought along something that helped bands grow and aspire to a better level than what they are now. And that seems like a very fitting place to leave it. Ray Coswell, MD of Metropolis Music, true pioneer. Thank you very much for joining us on the Did You Know podcast. It's been a pleasure, sir. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was the Did You Know Pioneers podcast, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Big thanks to Ray for sharing his story. And as ever, our thanks go to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Sean Springer, to our producer Cass Denton, and a Ruby on the socials, and to 320 for our theme music. Big thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and also to David, Wren, and the team at WX. You'll soon be able to be mentored by the guest of the Dig You Know Pioneers podcast. Details are coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And make sure you look out for our next episode with Sonia Dewan, one of the industry's top lawyers with the inspirational story of her career today. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.